Now for our second reading, let's uh, turn to the prophecy of Obadiah in the Old Testament. There's only one chapter in this prophecy. It's just before the book of Jonah. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So it's near the end of the Old Testament. The prophecy of Obadiah. And uh, just to set the background a little bit, Obadiah was called uh, by God uh, to deliver a single judgment against the people of Edom. Now, we're going to be looking at the people of Edom a little later on, but this uh, one chapter prophecy is addressed to that single group of people. And in verse 10, reading there, we see the reason why a judgment is pronounced upon them. So let's hear God's word in Obadiah and verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Again, may the Lord bless that reading from his word. But for our text, let's turn back to the better-known prophecy of Isaiah this time, and chapter 20. Sorry, chapter 21. Isaiah, chapter 21. And let's just take two verses from verse 11. Isaiah 21 and verse 11. The burden or the prophecy against Duma. Now, Duma is here representing Edom. I'll explain that a little later. So this burden is against the nation of Edom. He calls to me out of Seir. Now, again, by word of explanation, Mount Seir is the mountain that dominates the land of Edom. He calls to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, 
the morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. So in verse 11, this voice that comes wailing from Mount Seir, from the land of Duma, watchman, what of the night? Now, this passage of uh, scripture takes us back really where we were last week, in the sense that we find ourselves in this series of prophecies, which uh, Isaiah has called to deliver to the nations. Now, as I said last week, you'll remember that many of God's prophets were prophets to the nations. Not in the sense that they prophesied about nations, but they prophesied to the nations directly. Uh, you'll remember in the Old Testament, you had prophets like uh, Elijah and Elisha, who were uh, dealing with the kings of uh, Syria and Assyria and so on. Uh, these were international figures. And so are these prophets like Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So they are not just speaking about the nations, but to the nations. That's a reminder to ourselves too, as churches, that we are to not just speak about people, but to people. Now these nations in these chapters of Isaiah include um, nations like Egypt and Ethiopia. Babylon is included too, not because of course it's a nation, which it isn't, but it was the headquarters of an empire. And I think what binds all these nations together that Isaiah prophesies to is that they are all oppressors of God's people. And that's why these prophecies that God gives Isaiah to deliver are largely judgmental in nature. Um, because to fight against God's people and to fight against God's people because they are God's people is to fight against God himself. But there's an important difference uh, between some of these judgments and the rest. When we take them all together, as we find them throughout the prophecies, you'll find that some of these nations are just being judged for a time. Maybe severely, but just for a time. And they are nonetheless given hope that a brighter day will come. For example, we're told regarding Ethiopia, and it's Isaiah himself who tells us this later, that she will soon stretch out her hands towards God. Now, that's a wonderful promise in spite of the judgment pronounced here. Even concerning Egypt, which is so much associated in the scripture with the persecution of God's people and so on, she has given hope too that God's altar will be built in her land. It's Isaiah himself who gives that prophecy too. So nations are judged, but not without hope. But some of the nations are destined to oblivion. And the prophetic judgments unleashed upon them here are judgments that declare their fall as nations. And the fall is so cataclysmic and terrible that they will never rise again. In that way, um, nations are just like people. When God visits us with judgment, uh, sometimes uh, we're humbled by it, 
Sometimes we're taught by it, and sometimes we're corrected by it. But sad to say, it doesn't matter what judgment others receive, they are never really humbled by it. Or even if they're humbled for a time, they're never taught by it or corrected by it. Instead, uh, you harden your hearts and you persist in your sin. I mentioned Pharaoh last week. Uh, When God sent a successive wave of judgments upon Egypt, and who knows that there might not be a successive wave upon our own, but he sent a successive wave of judgments upon the nation. And as each uh, wave came, Pharaoh trembled. But when the judgment passed, he hardened his heart. And uh, sadly, he persisted in his own sin. And of course, God finally gave him over to judgment, from which there was no return. Now, of course, as God's uh, pestilence is sweeping this world, uh, the big question is the one that Daniel asked, what shall the end of these things be? Will anyone be humbled by it? That's the beginning of anything, really, to be humbled. I mean, who can be taught unless they're humbled? Will anyone be humbled? Will anyone be taught? Will anyone be corrected? Only time will tell that and the providence of God. Now, one of the nations that was destined not to change and indeed to perish from the earth is this nation of Edom, a country that was bordering the land of Israel. And in this passage here in our text, you'll see that Edom is in darkness. And in Hebrew, there's a a play on words here because the burden is not against Edom, but against Duma. That's just a a change of consonants. Uh, Edom means red. Duma means silent. So the name of Edom here has been changed from Edom to Duma, the land of silence. That means the silence of God's judgment. And indeed, the silence of death. I'll come to that in a moment. But the strange thing is that out of this land of silence and darkness, there's a voice. It seems like a lone voice. And the voice comes over into the land of Israel. And it comes to the watchman, who is the prophet of God. And it asks the question, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And there you see you have the sign of urgency because it's repeated. Watchman, what of the night? Now, I want with you to take really what is a straightforward approach to this text. And this morning, with God's grace, we'll look at Edom's question. What of the night? And as we gather tonight uh, at six o'clock, we'll look at the watchman's answer. The morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, and come back. So this morning, watchman, what of the night? But I think to make sense of both the question and the watchman's answer, we need to know two things. We need to know, first of all, who Edom is, and we need to know, too, who the watchman is. 
Now let's uh, begin with Edom. I, I mentioned a minute ago that they were a neighboring nation to Israel. Edom occupied what is the southwest area of Jordan today near the Dead Sea. But Edom was descended from Esau, who you'll remember was Jacob's twin brother. That reminds us that they are descended from Isaac and, of course, from Abraham. They are children of Abraham. So their forefather, Esau, was born to Isaac, and Esau received the sign of the covenant, the sign of faith. When he was young, he was circumcised. So that reminds us that in their past, these people were a spiritually privileged people. Now, it's something that's amazing and sad that spiritually privileged people can ever be found shrouded in darkness, like uh, these people are here. It's sad to say it's not an unusual thing. I mean, there are many, many people in our land who are spiritually privileged, maybe even some amongst yourselves who are hearing this today, you are spiritually privileged, but shrouded in darkness. We'll see why Edom was in such darkness in a minute. But that's who Edom is, a spiritually privileged people who have wandered from God. The second preliminary question is, who is the watchman? Now, watchmen were familiar figures in the ancient cities. They were individuals who were charged with the protection of the city. And uh, in many ways, they were the first line of defense. It was the watchman's duty to protect a city from outward attack. They were to look for the enemy and to blow the trumpet from the walls when the enemy was seen. And of course, as Paul reminds us, if a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who can prepare himself for battle? They were to warn the city that they were under enemy attack. Their second duty was to preserve peace and order within the city itself. A kind of policemen. So they would patrol at night. Night, of course, is a time of darkness and danger. And at that time, they would direct the lost, just as people used to go to a policeman years ago and ask directions. They would direct the lost, and importantly, they would tell the time. Now, that's going to become very significant for us in a minute here. Watchman, what of the night? Their duty was to tell the time, what particular watch of the night it was. Now, maybe most of you can recognize or maybe should recognize the task of a gospel minister there. God compares his own spokespeople to watchmen. Uh, Ezekiel was told, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And uh, in the passage that we read, it was his duty uh, to warn the people of their danger. And... Um, the passage is very arresting. Um, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you as a watchman give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his way, um, I will require his blood at your hand. If you warn him, 
but he doesn't turn. You have delivered your own soul. And again, he says, if you see a righteous man turning from his righteousness. So here is somebody who used to follow the Lord. But if you see them turning from the righteousness and you do not give him warning, he will die in this sin, but I will require his blood at your hand. Um, So it was his duty to, as a watchman, to hear the word from God's mouth and warn the people from me. Now, how solemn a duty that is. And uh, how solemn a thing it will be to appear at the judgment seat of God if we have not faithfully warned the people about the judgment of God to come. Uh, Let every watchman think about that. Let everyone who prays pray that God's watchmen might be faithful in declaring the judgment, judgment of God. Now, the watchman here is obviously Isaiah himself. And the voice that he hears coming to him from the darkness of Eden is a question. In the night time, asking him, what of the night? What of the night? Uh, But what of the night? What is the night here? Well, the night represents the judgment of God on the nation of Edom. Why did it come? Well, God's judgment came on Edom because she had turned away from God, yes. Uh, Broken the covenant, yes. But especially because she had turned into a persecuting nation. And she specially provoked God by persecuting God's people. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the famine in Elijah's day, uh, I, I mentioned to you of the importance of recognizing special sins that provoke God's judgment. The more brazen our sin, the more outward it is, the more defiant it is, the more the more it's kicking against God's privileges, the more deserving of wrath it is, the more it invites God to intervene. And this is one of the great sins that invites God's judgment, the persecution of God's people. And we read of it in Obadiah's prophecy, violence against your brother Jacob. When the strangers came in, and these were the Babylonians, and they carried Judah away captive, you stood there. You were as one of them, as one of the people who took captive, not as the captives. Instead of being afflicted with their affliction and praying for them and identifying with them, no, you gazed on Jacob in the day of his trouble. You rejoiced over the children of Judah in their afflictions. In fact, when they were taken away, you entered their gates. You laid hands on their substance, on their spoil. Even those who were left behind, you handed over to the enemy. And those who were escaping through the pass, you blocked the pass so that they would be taken captive. The guilt of the passerby, the guilt of the accomplice. Now, friends, to persecute God's people is to to persecute God himself. You remember famously when uh, Saul was uh, with, with commission from, from the authorities going to round up the young believers in Christ in Damascus. God arrested him, or Jesus 
uh, arrested him on the way to Damascus in a blaze of glory and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Because to hurt God's people is to afflict God himself. It's to hurt the apple of his eye, as God says in the Old Testament. They're as precious to him as that. And it's such a serious sin. It's such a serious sin. And for every soul of Tarsus who is gloriously delivered from it, there, there are ten heralds who are struck down because of this very sin of persecuting God's people. It's something that's very, very often a sign of going over the, land, the line and going into a place where there's no return and no deliverance. Spurgeon once famously commented on Psalm 1 when he was talking about the scorner's chair. Uh, he was warning against sitting on it because he said it is next to hell's door itself. Don't occupy that chair. Don't sit on it. Whatever anyone else says about the people of God, don't you join hands with them. Don't sit on the scorner's chair. If you, if you must remain in your unbelief, do so. I don't encourage you or call you to do so, but don't, don't be numbered amongst those who are persecuting the Lord's people, either in your speech or in your actions. And in, in God's providence, as we'll see in a moment, God's judgment caught up with Edom. Uh, they enjoyed the suffering of God's people, but then God turned upon themselves. You know, God will deal roughly with his own people, but uh, it's nothing in comparison with how he deals with those who are not his own. Uh, Edom herself came under a harsh rule, and uh, that's the reason for this cry in the night. That's why in their bondage now, and in the misery that's come to them, they're asking, what of the night? What of the night? What of the judgment? Now, Hebrew is a very uh, terse language. It uses very few words. The meaning here of what of the night is really, what time of night is it? It's the watchman's duty, you see, to tell which watch of night it is. Is it the first watch of the night? Is it the second watch of the night? The third or the fourth? And this question is asking the watchman, essentially, is the day any nearer? How far gone is the night? When will the judgment of God be over? Is relief coming? That's the question. Now, I want us to notice a few things in connection with that. The first thing I want you to notice is that Edom at least recognizes God's judgment here. However much she provoked God, they knew it was God's judgment that was upon them. And in this, maybe they're wiser than you. Take you, for example, who are still unconverted. God has sent troubles your way. He sent difficult providences. And some of these may be directly related to some of the sins that you have committed. And God's handling of you, whether you're aware of this or not, well, that's the point. God's handling of you is as a result 
of your sins. But do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever wonder if, if the particular providence that's come upon you at this time, I'm not talking about the disease here or the pestilence that's going through the lands right now. I'm talking about the way that God is handling yourself personally. Have you ever thought that it's the judgment of God that's upon you because of your sins? It's revealing to you that the wrath of God is abiding upon you anyway. It's also designed to be a forewarning of the judgment of God that will eventually overtake you utterly and totally. And have you ever thought then that your circumstances are the judgment of God? Well, at least Edom did. Edom did. Um, those of you who are Christians too, maybe God has set very difficult and severe providences in your life, but have you ever thought that they might be related to your sin? Um, it's very easy for us to conclude sometimes, well, that these are just providences, and uh, we're not to conclude that these providences are because of our sin. And we take comfort from one or two verses in Scripture to that effect, that we have to be careful in concluding that uh, circumstances are judgments for sins. But have you even thought about it? Has your judgment put you to self-examination? Have you thought that maybe it is I? Have you asked like the disciples, is it I? Uh, when a plague uh, came upon Judah, David was the reason. And David had to pray for that plague to be lifted. When a storm came upon Jonah and upon the mariners, it was because of Jonah. And it was because of his sin. But the sad thing is that maybe you are not even asked. Ask God, is my chastisement, is, is, is what I'm experiencing here to do with my sin? When the Lord's people were dying in Corinth, it was because they had abused the Lord's Supper. That their sickness and death was a call to self-examination. Uh, but maybe Edom here, as well as being wiser than the unconverted and wiser even than some Christians sometimes, maybe Maybe Edom here is even wiser than the church. Sometimes the church herself as a whole doesn't even discern the judgment of God. Uh, last week I, I spoke of the need to be like the men of Issachar who had understanding of the times. Now when the church is backslidden, she can't discern the times herself. She, she can't even discern the judgment of God. And she doesn't even know the difference between one thing and another. Um, Christ spoke to his own uh, people, to the, to the church in his own day. And he said uh, to the Pharisees who were ruling it, who constituted most of the elders and so on, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, you say, a shower is coming. And he says, so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, well, there will be hot weather. Hypocrites, he says, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth. But how do you not discern the times? How do you not discern the times? And Jeremiah says the same thing. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment 
of the Lord. The stork, the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow know their appointed times, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. That is a very solemn thought. It's a very solemn thought. So Edom at least knows that she is under God's judgment. You'll also notice that Edom has the sense to call upon God's watchman. Watchman. What time of night is it? And in this way too, maybe Edom is wiser than you. Um, When the Spirit of God is working in a heart, he, he directs that heart towards people who have an understanding of God's word and people who have been commissioned to proclaim it. You'll remember, for example, the Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer when he was searching the scriptures, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, to see whether the, the suffering servant in that prophecy was actually Jesus of Nazareth or was it the nation of Israel or, or what, was it somebody else? He was perplexed by it. And of course, God sent Philip the evangelist, alongside his chariot to guide him in that matter. He asked him, Philip asked him, are you understanding? Are you understanding what you are reading? And he said to Philip, how can I accept someone guide me? And Philip began to preach Jesus to him from the scriptures of the Old Testament, from Isaiah's prophecy. We're told in the Old Testament that it was the duty of the priest. The priest in the Old Covenant was the teacher A priest's lips should keep knowledge and people should seek the law at his mouth. And what a blessing it is to have a faithful watchman who knows the watches of the night, a watchman who can tell you the time and a watchman who can point you in the right direction. Sad to say, God's watchmen are not always that helpful. I don't have time to read the passage to you, but in the Song of Solomon, you've got a contrast uh, between two kinds of watchmen. There are two separate incidents in the Song of Solomon which involve watchmen, and they behave in very different ways. In the first instance, the, the woman or the church is seeking her beloved in chapter three. Uh, she's looking for her beloved at night time. And she comes to the watchman and she says, have you seen the one whom I love? Have you seen my beloved? And then in the following verse, verse four, she says this, scarcely had I passed by them, scarcely had I passed by the watchman when I found the one I love. Now, we're not explicitly told, but it's implicit there that the watchman had guided her in the right direction. The watchman knew where to find Christ. The watchman knew how to find Christ. So scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I loved. They they pointed to the wicked gate. They pointed to the Lord and Savior, and she found her beloved. But in chapter 5, it's a different scenario. Again, it's nighttime, and again, the church is seeking her Lord. But this time, we read that the watchman struck me and they wounded me. And although she eventually found her beloved, it was no thanks to the watchman. Sad to say, 
that's our situation in our land today. And there's no point glossing over it. There's no point in denying it. It's the truth and it's evident. Too many watchmen cannot discern the times. They don't know the judgment of God. They don't even speak of the judgment of God because they don't believe in the judgment of God. They seldom speak of hell, if ever, because they don't believe in hell. Perhaps they don't say so, but sometimes our silence reveals what we believe more than our speech. If you believe in it, speak about it. If you believe in the reality, tell people about the reality. The sad thing is that so many souls today, if they became conscious of night, if they became conscious of the judgment of God, it would almost be the last thing to do to walk into a church because the watchman will strike you and wound you, not in a good way, but in a bad way. Um, Let me just urge you, if you're conscious of the night, if you're conscious of God's judgment and impending doom in Edom, seek out a gospel church, seek out a faithful ministry. Um, In the word of God anyway, you will find Christ seeking there. But no know a true watchman too, and hear the word of God from a true watchman. Well then, Edom knew God's judgment. She knew it was nighttime in her own land, and she had the sense to call on God's watchman as well. She had the sense to call on him. And again, you'll notice that Edom expects deliverance from God's judgment. She expects the night to be passed. She expects morning to break and a day to come. Or in other words, she expects deliverance to come from the judgment of God. What time of night is it? Is it nearly over? Now, it's amazing how sinful man, and maybe you, um, persists in a groundless hope. The hope is that if there is a God at the end of the day, he is good. Uh, I've heard of him, and he is a merciful God, and he's slow to wrath. Uh, He is plenteous in mercy. He won't let me perish. That's your hope. Well, if that's your hope, the Bible calls you a prisoner of hope. You're doomed because of your hope. Your hope's killing you. It's the hope that kills you. It is. It's the hope that kills you, If if it's a bad hope. You'll notice what's missing from this cry, watchman, what of the night, watchman, what of the night. Again, what's wrong with it is not what it says, really. It's, it's what's not in it. It's a plaintive cry. It's a mournful cry. It's a cry from people you'd expect to, to be really sorry. But there's no confession in it, is there? There's no acknowledgement of sin in there, is there? The, the only cry they've got is, when's this going to be passed? You'll notice in life, the unbeliever is always more bothered by judgment than the cause of the judgment and putting that right. They're never bothered with that, just by the judgment itself. It's the same with this virus. All you hear is, what time is it? When is the peak? Is the peak here? Will the peak be there shortly? When will it be over? When will the day come? There's no word of searching out any kind of cause in ourselves. There's no word of sin. 
there's no word of the fact that it's amazing that it's not even worse than it is. And it's not to say our nation is among the worst when it comes to this. The American president at least calls for prayer. The Australian prime minister uh, prays himself on national television for the lifting of the scourge. But all we've got in our country is a kind of hang on in there type of thing. And we'll pull through and the British spirit will mean that it'll pass. But our nation and our churches don't need pet dogs. We don't need a bulldog spirit. We don't need a wartime spirit. We need repentance and we need a call to repentance. And that should come from our queen and her ministers, as well as coming from me and the watchmen that God has called and appointed. We, we need to fall on our knees in the plague. We need to say that we have sinned. And we need to follow that up by a deliberate and systematic repeal of all the evil and ungodly legislation of the last 50 years, the last 20, 10 especially. When will it be over? What time or night is it? Is that your only question? Is that your only confession? Is that all you want to know? When's the lockdown finished? And of course, when you're asking that question too, when's the night over? It's because, it's because you want the day to break. And you want the day to break to bring exactly the same kind of day you had before the night came. The intention is to live life as we did before. What's the best way to celebrate when the virus is over? Street party, in all probability. More debauchery. Live life as we did. The interesting thing is, you see, that, that, that you hear people speak of change. Oh, well, it's a changed country. And uh, uh, the country's going to be different when this is over. Is it? Is it? Or, or in what way is it going to be different? The only difference that really matters is a repentant difference. That's, that's the only difference. That's the only change that is real change. What time of night is it? What time of night is it for yourself? Is the night nearly over? Will it ever be over? Well, the prophet's reply is that the morning is coming, but also the night. If you'll inquire, inquire. Let's uh, see tonight, uh, God willing, what this reply means. May the Lord uh, bless uh, our meditation upon his own word. Let us pray. O Lord, teach us, we pray, the things we need to learn and to know and help us to carry them with us. It is one thing to be shaken by a providence. It is another to be changed by it. Uh, Felix trembled under the word of God, but ultimately he was unmoved. He changed no course and followed no new direction. O Lord, humble us, we pray. Teach us our need of salvation. Lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the seals in his own hand, the one who unleashes these providences, the one who is striking from heaven, but the one who is able to heal too. Give us grace as a people to be 
respectful of God's people, respectful of the church, respectful too of your ancient people, uh, the Jewish people who are still objects of so much persecution and hostility. We pray for their re-engrafting, according to promise, into the stock of Israel. We ask, Lord, that you would make us wise in these things. In the Redeemer's name, amen.